these days we've we've tamed nature. Um, we've got Mother Nature at our at our beck and call. If we snap our fingers, we get a burger. If we you know we can order McDonald's on Uber Eats and it rocks up to our door. And we've, we're living like kings. You know, there's there's kings in the past that hasn't had that haven't had the luxuries that we've had today. We've got running tap water and a flushing toilet. Yet, as a society, we're the most unhappy society that that's ever that's ever been. Now, I think personally, it's because we run towards comfort, comfort, and don't run towards uncomfort. And the reason I say that is because you can't appreciate light without dark you can't appreciate pain without pleasure hello everybody and welcome to running from comfort this is episode 22 today's show our guest is an old friend of mine who i went to high school with his name is jesse and he is a police officer if you're listening today then you are in for a real treat because this is honestly one of the best conversations that i have recorded to date Jesse described himself to me as a human guinea pig. Being a police officer, Jesse has seen some horrific things and he has to deal with, you know, some of the worst of society. So Jesse has explored a variety of different methods, techniques, different religions, different philosophies, you know, soaking up all the knowledge and wisdom that he can in order to build up a strong mindset. So this conversation goes deep. And ultimately, both of us talk about what our biggest personal beliefs are in life and how we came to those conclusions. So stick around because there is a lot of wisdom and knowledge being shared in this conversation. And I feel like these are the type of important conversations that you don't really get in the world of mainstream media and mainstream entertainment. So I hope that you all enjoy. And if you do, please subscribe for future episodes. If you think there is somebody else that you know that might enjoy this conversation, then share the show with them. And please give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening on. You have no idea how much this helps and you have no idea how much it'll mean to me. And if you are a fan of the show, I want to hear from you. So please reach out on my social media platforms at running underscore from underscore comfort. Um, You can also find us on Facebook, Running From Comfort. Um, You can hit me up on Instagram. My Instagram is at galloway.dit, G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y-E-D-I-T. All right, peace out. Welcome to Running From Comfort. Um, Today, I have an old friend of mine who I went to school with, um, He's on the other side of the law. Um, his name is Jesse. Jesse, hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much. And um, what, what do you do exactly? Uh, I'm a police officer by day and afternoon shift and night shift, depending on where I'm working. And then I'm also also got a side hustle where I'm a personal trainer. Mm. So, yeah, two jobs. He's mm. on the wrong side of the law, just letting you all know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Really joking? No, that's just that's just lawyers. We've got biased opinions about police officers. Nah, all good. Police officers. Don't worry, we've got to about you guys too. <laughs> they do. They do good service to the community. They keep us safe. Um. So you know, you know, thank you very much. You know, because you your job in itself. You know, you serving the community. You're serving other people. You wanna? You know, just tell us a little bit about sort of what it's like to be a police officer, just briefly. Um. Well, uh, when you join, uh, join the force, I guess you have. The intentions uh, going in to help the community and and challenge yourself and, and do your best to um, uh, fight for what's right and that kind of thing. And I always had a, a strong sense of 
of justice and, and wanting to do something about the things and, um, you know, the injustices that I saw in the world. So that was my main reason for joining. Um, not long after joining the police force, you realise that uh, the world's an interesting place and it's, it's full of injustice and sometimes um, oh, it's hard to change the world, put it that way. You know, you can make a difference to your little circle or your little community or um, specifically where you work, what station you work at, but trying to make big change is actually a lot more difficult than, than people think. Um, and so what it's like being a police officer is kind of like keeping a lid on, on crime. You're never going to diminish crime um, at all because the reality is that every time someone goes into jail, someone's coming out. Um, every time you stop someone from doing the wrong thing, someone else will start. And um, it's all just sort of about trying to contain it and make sure that it, it has minimal impact on the rest of the community that are doing the right thing. And that's one of the biggest frustrations about being a cop is seeing that um, without fail, humans will, there will be humans that will um, just want to watch the world burn as, as it's set. I think Batman, um, no, sorry, not Batman, but the other the guy joke. on Batman says that. Yeah, Is it the Joker? Is that that? Um, no, no, no. no Alfred. It? it was Alfred. Alfred, that's it. Yeah, I didn't think it was a yeah, joker. That, that was a man who was trying to make the world burn. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got to go watch The Dark Knight again. That is a, that's a great film. But um, yeah. look, i got Jesse on here today. We've got, we've got a few things that we want to um, talk about. You know, Jesse, um, you refer to yourself as a human guinea pig, which I think is a very um, interesting way to talk about yourself. But, um, you know, so Jesse um, has been on his own, I suppose, self-development journey. And I suppose that's something we want to get stuck into because I feel like, you know, that's something we could all take away from as well. But just while we are on the topic of being a police officer, because I really do feel like there's a lot, I suppose, we could also talk about there. So while we are still on the topic, one of the questions I want to ask you is what's one of the most misrepresented thing about police officers that you find that you'd want to maybe clear? Oh, that's a very good one. Misrepresented. Um, I think use of force. So um, there's a massive misconception that, and I've got to be very, very careful about how I say this, so bear with me. Um, we deal with the worst of the worst and on a daily basis. Um, taking the approach of, of um, coming in softly um, to start with, will always be our main priority and to, to resolve things as peacefully and calmly as possible. The problem is, is that most of the people we deal with don't start there. They start somewhere between extremely violent or resistant, you know, or violent. and um, you deal with enough people like that and you realise that... Um, you realise soon that there is effective methods in communication and effective methods in, in use of force that um, you'll never be able to explain to the community without them, them being in your shoes and experiencing and dealing with the people that we deal with daily themselves. Um, there's, a, there's a video that I recently saw where um, an activist who was completely a police and... Uh, Oh, sorry, you're cutting out there just a little bit. Can I just... Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat what I just said. So recently I saw a, a video um, of, an, of an activist. He was the leader of an acti activist group. And um, 
the police force, it was one in America, they invited him in to their training um, academy and put him through a number of um, use of force, uh, what do they call them, activities or scenarios. Hmm. And in the first scenario, he got shot. In the second scenario, he shot an unarmed man. And in the third scenario, he let a guy resist to the point where he was able to get a knife out or I don't think he got stabbed, but he was able to get a knife out and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, prior to the video, um, this activist had a lot of things to say about the way that police do things and the force that they use straight up and why they're so um, authoritative in their approach to, to dealing with um, certain members of the community. And you find out soon enough that if you take the method that he would have taken, he would have died in the first week of policing. Uh, policing. There's there's a reason why we do the things we do. It's been tried and tested. Um, and, of course, I'm not in any way advocating um, use of force that's outside the bounds of, of what's legal, which is justifiable, lawful, reasonable and necessary. But sometimes um, arrest scenarios are not pretty. They're very dynamic. Um, they're not like the Kung Fu movies or what you see from Bruce, Bruce Lee on, on uh, you know, the old movies and that. They're, they're simply scrappy nasty and and people want to take your head off and at the end of the day the coppers that rock up to work every day just want to go home and and be with their families and so we do what's safe for us and what's safe for the community in containing an arrest and 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 doing it in a way that's it's going to work so that's Mm. the biggest misconception in my yeah i feel i feel like i've seen that video as well and you know it must be, I suppose, sort of difficult to, I guess, tiptoe those lines between like what force can you use in what scenario? And especially, I suppose, when somebody else is posing a threat towards you. Um, I'm imagining you've been in a few situations like that. Do you, do you have any that you might be able to tell us? Or Yeah. So well, the first thing is, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example in a minute. But um, the first one would be that when we go into an arrest scenario, a lot of the time we don't know how skilled the person is. They might have... A, a history of martial arts. They might be a UFC fighter. They might be able to knock us out with one punch or be the best grappler in the world. Um, we don't know what they've got on them. So they could have a knife. They could have a gun. They could have knuckle dusters. They could, you know, a taser. You just don't know. Um, and then the other thing is you don't know what their what their intentions are. You can't see someone's intentions from their face. There's skills that you can sort of develop to sort of pick, um, you know, if they're, if they're putting your foot back and they're, they're planting their foot ready to punch you. There's an intention there, but a lot of the time people will be calm, cool and collected and then just snap, especially under the effects of drugs. So um, one of the biggest wake-up calls for me was when um, I was arresting someone in, in a street in a, uh, I'll call it a low socioeconomic suburb, and um, I had a lawful reason to arrest this bloke for a stealing and, um, and I went to, to place him under arrest. Naturally, most people resist a little bit. There's a little bit of a pull away or, oh, what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, they might walk away or they might um, verbally resist by saying, no, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't touch me, rah Um, And so that's when you have to lay hands on them legally and say you're under arrest. Now, from that moment, it goes either two ways. They either go, yep, no worries, you've got me, but it doesn't happen often. Most yeah. time it goes the other way and there's a little bit of resistance. Um, in that scenario, um, that resistance turned into the whole street sort of coming out and and, uh, and I, I soon found myself very outnumbered um, and 
it was a very, very touch and go situation. And what, probably one of the first moments that I ever thought, yep, I'm probably going to die. Um, just the level of aggression from, from the people in the street and obviously a very, very anti-police street. Um, and it's one of those moments where your life sort of flashes before your eyes. Um, thank God I, I came out of it all right. Um, there was a little bit of retreating and there was a bit of um, standing my ground and, and showing authority in certain you know, certain areas and things like that. So I had to navigate through it using every bit of communication skills that I could because I didn't have the physical capabilities, most people don't, to take on a whole street worth of people. Um, that's when I, I started to really dive into to martial arts um, and I started taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes initially mm. um, and I soon found out that like sort of most guys I think feel like they can handle themselves to an extent um, if, if the time called for it. Um, but you, but going up against guys that actually know what they're doing and especially in, in the martial arts community, say Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you realise that um, they, you're, you're drastically um, outskilled um, and you feel like you're drowning the first class you take if it's, if it's a good place, you know, if it's the right dojo that you're going to sort of thing. Um, and so for me, I loved it because it was like, okay, this is exactly what I need. I want to feel like I'm in control and right now I feel like I'm drowning. So I want to be the, the shark in the water, not the, not the seal sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got into martial arts initially. And then from that, from all those different um, places uh, or, or, sorry, scenarios at work, um, seeing a whole lot of death in the first year of policing, um, dealing with the 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 worst of society, I have to develop um, a level of mental toughness because I feel like you either you either break in the job or you find a way to survive and adapt. And so I had to survive and adapt if I wanted mm. to, to stay being a police officer. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a lot there. And <clears throat> I suppose one of the biggest things uh, I suppose from there is, you know, you said you, you found a moment where you thought, all right, this is good. This might be the moment that I die. And that's got to be like very confronting. Um, I mean, personally, like I've maybe had like maybe two moments in my life where I've, where I've, you know, faced my mortality and thought this could be a moment where I die. And, you know, everything in your body is just like racing. And I suppose to, how did you find yourself handling yourself in that moment? Like, was there, how did you, was there a way you calmed yourself down or? I think under, under circumstances like that, adrenaline just takes over and your natural instincts um, kick in. So mm. one of the things that I love, love about martial arts is it's a simulation for what happens in a fight, flight or run scenario. So the first time you'd get punched in the face, um, and I love this analogy, a few things happen. There's a shock. There's a, oh, my goodness, do I run? Or you get aggressive and you fight back or you freeze. And, you know, there's all these, you never know what way you're going to go. And it also depends on what you're confronted with. So I've been confronted with people um, and I've had all different reactions. Um, but the more I I study martial arts and become more confident in my own abilities, the more um, competence I have and then the more confidence I have going into those situations as well, as well. as well. So initially I can tell you that I didn't have the right level of confidence and like all the training in the police academy in the world will get you to a certain level 
but you need to know deep down in the, the depth of your soul that um, you have the ability, weapons or not, to be able to defeat your opponent, or not defeat them, but to, to arrest them, we'll put it that way. So that's the only time, and this is why I'm, I'm on that journey to sort of get better, because I, I need to know that I can handle myself every day at work, and the only way I'm going to get there is by continuing to, to train. And then there's the sort of mental toughness side of it. Um, I think, you know, the old saying, that the hotter the water, the stronger the tea. If I keep voluntarily going into situations where I'm forced to adapt, um, whether it's, uh, you know, mental scenarios like, like diving into meditation or, or jumping into freezing cold water or, or challenging, challenging myself in, um, in sort of at training in martial arts, I'm, I'm, I'm voluntarily stepping into uh, um, or stepping out of comfort into uncomfort and that's the only way you can then adapt and become a stronger human, which yeah. is exactly what your podcast is about. Yeah, is why I like. <laughs> exactly right. Which is which is which yeah. exactly why I've got you on here because um, I suppose if if you never get outside of your own comfort zone or outside of your own boundaries, then you're never going to, I suppose, experience any growth. And you know, stagnation can be a problem. Um, you know, mm. if you get too comfortable, if you get too stagnant, and you're not growing, you're not going to get anywhere in life. And I suppose especially for somebody like you being a police officer, you know, working a job, you know, you know, there's a lot that you have to do. There's a lot you have to take on in that role. And, you know, like you said, you're, you're confronted with things such as death, whether that be the possibility of your own or, you know, you have to actually, you know, see death firsthand, which, you know, that's, that's very, very confronting. And so I guess there's a lot of growth that you, I suppose you need to put yourself into. And I love what you said when you got into the um, jujitsu that you felt like, you were drowning and that's what drew you into it because you have to really get used to feeling uncomfortable to experience that growth. So I suppose what I want to um, get into next is what, what were some of the things that you were doing in terms of um, trying to build up your mental toughness? Mm. Um, the first one is that I, that I dove into, oh, I was raised a uh, Christian. Um, I sort of fell away from that a little bit and I, I was always semi-searching but I started to seriously search um, when I sort of hit a wall mentally a little bit, probably struggling with the concept that that um, some humans are evil and just want to watch the world burn like we talked about before. So I was faced with a scenario where I had to go, okay, I need to come to terms with the group that, that death is a thing, it's brutal, it sucks. You look out in nature, there's lions tearing the crap out of gazelles eating them from the feet up to the head, and it's just sucky and there's nothing nice about it unless you look for it. And so for me, I was trying to find a way to come to grips with the, with the evil or atrocities or um, horrific and brutal side of the world and then trying to sift through all that to try and find a purpose and a reason to live and to live um, fully and, and to live well. So um, I started diving into philosophy and um, I guess from philosophy I started looking at science. So there's, I think there's a, there's a, a crossover between philosophy and science mm. where um, science will explain um, things using logic and using um, deduction and using um, tests and, and, and a lab and, and all the physical world that can be physically measured, science will do that. 
philosophy tells you the why. So it gives you the things that you can't test in a test tube. Um, and the classic example I'll give is, um, say you boil a, a, a jug of or a saucepan of water on a stove, science will tell you why the water's boiling, you know, that, that the heat is causing the water to bubble and, and blah, blah. Um, I've just got to stop you just a second. You, you're just being yeah. cutting out there again. Um, All good. Okay, I think you're back now. I'm um, sorry. So you, you, you. No. So before you started cutting out, you just um, said science will tell you that the water's boiling, and then you move, moving into the philosophy side. Yeah. So science will tell you that the water um, is boiling because of the, the chemistry and the um, chemicals and things like that. Um, it'll even measure at what temperature the water will boil. But philosophy will, will tell you um, why it's boiling. And the answer might be that someone put that water there with the intention to make a cup of, a cup of tea with the hot water. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have the why without the how. But those two things, the, the philosophy and the science, cross over into a beautiful V. And I sort of found that in that V, most of my favourite philosophers came to the conclusion that there is a higher power mm. from one way or you know one way or another, um, and so developing mental toughness for me was a was a was a journey where I had to um, dive into the why and the how of life, and then I've come to my own conclusion through studying. Um, philosophers scientists and now theology um i've dabbled in buddhism i've dabbled in christianity i've i've dabbled in judaism and islam and and um even uh sikhism rastafarianism i've, I've re- done a lot of research and i've come to the conclusion that there is a higher power um and a lot of things point to that which i can go on to if you want me to next. yes <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I, I would like to hear your take on um, the higher power point of view. Um, but before I get stuck into that, I want to ask, where, where do you sit now? Like what, aside from your belief being in a higher power, like do you, do you subscribe to one form of belief more than another or? Mm. That's a good one. Um, oh, can I answer that after, after justifying why? I yeah. think the way I think. Yeah, I reckon yeah sure. It's Go a, for it. It's a long story. All right. Mm. So when I grew up, uh, my dad used to tell me, um, you know, never never be dependent on man because they'll fail you every time. And I didn't really understand it until growing up and realising that if you rely on anything in the material and physical world, whether it be a person, you, you cling to your partner or you cling to your parents, um, they can all die. <laughs> you can have You can cling to your job or your career and you might lose your job the coronavirus might happen, you know, who knows? You can cling to your body or a sport. So say if you cling too hard to your abilities in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and that's all you live for and then one day you break your legs or get in a car crash and you can't use your body anymore, um, that's gone as well. So everything that's material, if you try and cling to it, eventually it it can leave or get destroyed um, so you have to you have to have your 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 sight setting uh, sight set on something a little bit higher just the material world. Um, I think my my dad once said, 
do you love your mother more than God or God more than your mother? And I said, well, mum, of course, because I can see mum. I can hear mum. Mum feeds me. But he said, who do you think gave, who do you think gave you mum? And then mm. I was forced to think and go, oh, hold on a minute. There's, you know, you, you have to give acknowledgement to, to the thing that, that brought you and your family and everything here in the first. Um, that, that gave me a very, very solid, good grounding for what I later found to be um, evidence for God. So diving into philosophy and science, you find that there's, there's three ways to truly know something. The first is via um, your senses. So you're born with eyes, you're born with ears, you're born with taste, you're born, you're born with a sense of touch. And science, this is where science doubles, um, here and the next one, but mainly in the senses. So without your senses, science wouldn't be able to uh, conduct tests in a test tube or measure, um, you know, temperatures and, and, and um, distances and time and things like this. There's no measurement without our senses, right? And we know something because we can touch it, feel it, taste it, see it. The second one is via deduction. We, we can know something via deduction. And this is where science really gets into sort of logical side of things and, and becomes heightened and, and higher than, this, um, than just senses. So if I've got a basket, I put two apples in a basket, I lift the basket over my head and then I take one apple out, I can logically deduct that there's only one apple left in there. Even though I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't smell it, I can't taste it. So, um, and the other example I'll give is that um, if, you're, if you're measuring something, um, the only way that you, you, you can't measure it by eyesight or by tasting or by hearing it, but you can measure it with a ruler, and that's the deduction and, and the logic side of science. The most important so, um, way to know something, though, and we know this from philosophy, is intuition. Because the only way that I know that you exist is because I know that I exist. Everything else is just a hypothesis or a guess. And I'll explain this a bit further. So you've got, you've got, um, so I'm going to work out how to word this. I don't know how you like the taste of tea. Only you know that. Mm. And your opinion of what tea tastes like is exactly true to you, and my opinion of what tea tastes like um, is exactly true to me. I know what it's like to be conscious and aware, and I'm only guessing that you're conscious and aware because I know. So that is the highest way of knowing something, and that's the only thing we dive into philosophy that we truly actually know. We know that we think, therefore we are. And I think it was might have been Dostoevsky, uh, Leibniz, one of them, one of the famous philosophers said, um, we think, therefore we are. Um, and the reason why I say everything else is a hypothesis is because science is always subject to change. Mm. So what Isaac Newton thought was the rule of gravity later got debunked by um, Albert, Einstein's, Albert, uh, Albert Einstein's definition of gravity. Um, what we used as a measurement, uh, say, 50 years ago, has now been refined and we've got smaller units of measurement than we had back 50 years ago. So we're able to more accurately measure things now than we did back then. But 50 years ago, we thought that our measurement tools were exactly what we needed and were exactly correct. So science is ever evolving. Things are ever becoming more refined 
and are always subject to change and hypothesis. Science is a big advocate of the rule of randomness. You know, some things just happen randomly. But now we know that everything physically can be measured if we have the right tools and implements. Mm. For example, we used to say that hitting a bunch of um, balls on a pool table is random. The balls just fall where they, where they may fall. But now we know if we could measure the friction of the table, the wind resistance, the force of the balls in the arm, you know, like the level of force that he's used, um, the weight of the balls, the tilt of the table, we could logically measure where all of the different balls will land. We just don't have the units of measurement or the way to do that, you know. So what this leads is to the fact that randomness is not a thing. Everything follows a perfect structure and order and it's all based on a law and a governing force that is outside of the realm of physics itself because the only way for physics to exist is for something metaphysical to put it there in the first place. God. Mm. Interesting, interesting. I like that. Um, and that harkens back to something I've actually been thinking about recently. So good timing on this. And that I, I've been thinking, I've been tossing this up in my mind recently. There's this idea that the only truth that like me or you really have is subjective because it's based upon our own limits of our own perception and our own perspective. Like we're limited by our minds. We're limited by our bodies. And, you know, there's what we know. There's what we know we don't know. But outside of that is this huge world of what we don't know we don't know. And there is, Mm. I mean, it could be infinite what we don't know. It's it's absolutely ridiculous and crazy. So Mm. to me, I guess, what I find, I suppose, stands true in all of this is that somewhere for us to exist there has to be objective truth Mm, exactly um Mm. just on that point one thing i've been diving into like recently is the concept of where um the i am or the the consciousness of us actually exists and where if there is a soul where that would exist within us and the answer is that science can't pinpoint it Leibniz did a test or had a saying where um, he said, if you shrink a human and you put it inside someone's brain, you'll see neurons firing and you'll see blood pumping, but you won't see the, you won't see the ideas that they have in their head and you won't hear the song that they're playing in their head, you know, or the catchy tune that they, they keep listening to. There's some aspects of the human body that you can't put in a test tube. In the same token, if you cut off your finger, you're still you. If you cut off your arm, you're still you. We know that there is definitely areas of the body that can be gone and you'll still function. In the same token, you can live without all of your senses. You will exist, but you just won't live well. It's, it's, a, it's an issue of, um, you know, how well you're going to live and things like that. So um, I think it was Imam Ghazali, which is an um, Islamic philosopher, that talked about the concept of the floating man, where if you didn't have a body, and you didn't have your senses, but you simply had the intelligence that is that is within you, your consciousness, that is your soul. And the reason that you know that exists is because right now you've got your ancestor's nose. You don't you don't remember him in your head, um, but your your DNA, your your human um, intelligence that's beyond just your body and beyond just your mind remembers your genetic makeup so far beyond what you can comprehend that, that it's taken all of your 
families, histories, DNA dating all the way back to Adam and Eve if you go that far and it's put you together as a human knowing full well how it all works and it's so intelligent that it can take a piece of bread or a carrot and turn it into your brain because we know that after seven years all of the cells in your body get replenished but you're still Zach. So the body will fade away, the cells will be replaced, your mind will be replaced, your heart will be replaced but the essence that is Zach your, your soul lives on mm. and yeah even after seven years you're still there so yeah and mm. i suppose the, the idea of consciousness um you know being outside of something we can measure you know consciousness in its own right it's it's this crazy idea and i don't think that we're ever going to be able to pinpoint it there are definitely people that are out in the field that are trying to pinpoint i suppose this whole mystery of consciousness but it does it does appear that um you know, a consciousness does sort of inhabit our soul. That that seems to be one of the things that I suppose is recurring. But mm. I guess then, because so you do have a belief in God, but I suppose you said that you had dabbled in a lot of religions um, and a lot of different areas of religion. So is there any of them that you do subscribe to another or are there practices from particular religions that you implement in your daily life? Mm. If you look at if you look at most religions, the first one is is the Abrahamic God, so the God of the Old Testament. Um, and and if you look at the way that um, the way that the Old Testament lines up with the history of Israel and and the history of the Middle East and and things like that, there's aspects that are that are um, analogies, I believe. Say, for example, we don't know who, who wrote the book of Job. It's a story mm. that could have been passed down from generation to generation. Very interesting um, story too, by the way. I love that story. It's <laughs> like this idea, yeah. just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just quickly, the idea yeah, right. that the devil's bargaining with God is, and he's waltzing around in heaven and then God's just like, fine, go. Do everything yeah, you will. want to him. He, he's going to stay faithful to me. It's, it's a crazy story. But yeah. anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. But what it does is it provides a good uh, structure and grounding for the fact that God will never give you something that you can't handle, mm. which, is an, which is something else we can talk about. But anyway, so you've got stories like Job um, and you've got, you've got say, the, uh, the story of Adam and Eve where um, you've got God creating the, the earth in days and to us we look at home for us. Rocks are, you know, there's evidence that rocks have been surviving for billions of years. I think that a lot of that, uh, a lot of those God creating things in days and that are, are might be analogies for mm. a, a period of time that is not what we as humans, you know, only 2,000 years ago have decided is 24 hours. So mm. a day can be a period of time. But anyway, when you, when you go a little bit further into the, the Old Testament, you see that the rise and fall of Israel historically did happen. And then the, the emergence of the Roman Empire historically did happen and things like that. So to me, where I sort of ended up back was the original gangster of religions, which is the Abrahamic God. It's the oldest text that, that we can find apart from the Mayans about the concept of God. So then I started to look at the Old Testament being, you know, predominantly uh, Judaism and then how it correlates with the New Testament being the belief in, in Jesus. So I read a book um, called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And the story of Lee Strobel is that he's a, an atheist journalist. 
that then goes on a, a journey to debunk the existence of Jesus Christ. Uh, that didn't happen, funnily enough. What happened was the further he dove into it, the more he realized that from a historical perspective and only historical, there is a heap of evidence, more so than Caesar. Yeah. There's so Crazy much evidence fact. of the existence of, of Christ. Now, he's a man that, that rocked up on the earth and changed everyone's concept of, of time to being BC and AD. Don't tell me that something didn't happen in, in that period. You've got, you've got the Quran, which traditionally Quran and Christianity haven't really got along all that well, but they even admit that, that, that Jesus was a person. You've got um, a, a famous atheist uh, by the name of Rickens who won't deny the existence of a man called Christ. All Richard does is deny that he is the son of God, which is, which is the big claim. So Lee Strobel goes through this, this bit of a journey um, in, in looking at Jesus and, and um, the evidence that he had to exist and that he, res- that he died and got resurrected and things. And he came to the conclusion of the five E's. Um, the first one is the, is the execution. There's a lot of evidence for the execution of Christ. And um, I think it's the American, American Medical, Medical Association that did a um, did a breakdown of, of the crucifixion and without a doubt determined that if this man called Jesus died on a cross and had all those horrific things hap- to, you know, happen to him, there's no way he would have survived it. But the first de- one that he wanted to debunk was that there was some way that Jesus might have survived the crucifixion and that's why he got raised again. The second one was the empty tomb. So um, in the early church there was a, there was a, I guess, a conspiracy theory that um, that the disciples came in and took the body of Jesus away. Now, they didn't have the means because the emperor, uh, or the, the Roman at that time, it was a um, pilot, Pontius Pilate or whoever was running so, the show yes, back yeah. then. He purposely, and you can look at it in the Bible, he purposely set up a guard, guards there, um, and things to make sure there's no way that the body of, of Christ could be touched, allegedly, according to history. Um, and they didn't have the means, the motive, or the or the any way to do it, historically speaking. Um, now, there's 515 eyewitnesses to a man called Jesus, and a lot of them, so I think, I don't know how many exactly, but I think it was around 25-ish, were post- death now we can debate that all day but even the 515 eyewitnesses historically speaking saying that he did this and he did that and he traveled here and he um, did this miracle or whatever is enough to make you think and go let's weigh up 515 eyewitnesses you wouldn't need that to convict someone these days from a policing perspective Mm. you wouldn't if you had it It'd be, a, it'd be a clear-cut case, you know, 515 eyewitnesses. So to me, that was a massive, like, whoa moment. And then you've got the early records. So these eyewitnesses and these accounts of, of the, the story of Jesus Christ, they were all very, very soon or during Jesus' life. So you've, if, you have a, if you have something in history, 400 years later, 
a book was written about it. You could say that that during that time, you know, stories passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, they'd lose their validity and they'd be they'd be tainted by um, the 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 Chinese whispers of generations. Um, you know, putting their human splurge on the story, but the the, the early records of Christ are are valid historically, and even historians will agree with that. And then the last one is the early emergence of the church. So you've got you've got a man who's claiming to be the son of God, um, and you've got him saying, "I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to die. Uh, I'm going to rise again." And then if he was to die and that didn't happen, you could safely assume that he's full of crap, couldn't you? You'd yeah. go, ah, oh, I was wrong. Everything you said was lies. So disciples would be just... feeling really embarrassed by that point. They'd be like, oh. Exactly. You'd let it go, wouldn't you? Instead, yeah. what happened it was there was an early and massive boom in the Christian church immediately after the death of Christ. So what's yeah. happened is they've gone, holy crap. This is what I think anyway. They've gone, holy crap, what he said actually happened. This person over here saw him. This person over here saw him. He came to this person, you know, in the image of this. This poor, this person saw him die and this person saw him live. We better tell people. And then all of a sudden, bang, the early emergence of the Christian church spread throughout Europe and Asia and, and all the rest. So the five E's, historically speaking, give give pretty good evidence for at least the existence of, of a man uh, called Jesus. Now, whether he's the son of God, that's subject to debate, but you'll never debate me on, oh, you'll never, with, with, with what I've de- um, gained from philosophy and science and coming to the conclusion of a higher power, and then the, the his- historical evidence of Jesus, somewhere there's a truth. Mm. And I'm still trying to work out the correlation between the two, but I would say definitely, um, based on the knowledge I've gained so far, I'm not I'm not done looking in the Bible. Yeah. So Christian uh, Christian faith is, is probably where I'm at at the moment. Christian faith still. Yeah, no, no, faith. I like that. And anybody that's listening, they've probably heard me ramble here and there a couple of times. That yes, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, and it's it's very very interesting. And I suppose one of the things I want to um, bring out here was this I was this idea that it's um the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, and the mm. Old Testament. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and through the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So yeah, it's man. like Jordan this idea. The, yeah, so, so it's, like, it's like this whole time God's had this plan from the beginning and if you actually study the Bible, you can see how it unfolds. One of the craziest things I came across was it's in Genesis 5. There's this genealogy of names, right? Mm. And people have taken this genealogy of names back to like the original, like what was written written on the original Hebrew tablets. And if you translate the meaning of each name back to their original Hebrew meaning, it reads something along the lines of man has been appointed mortal sorrow. So the blessed God like came down and suffered for us. It doesn't say it exactly like that. You can look this up, but it's the genealogy in Genesis five. If you want your mind blown, look this up because this would have been written on tablets in Hebrew thousands of years before Christ. It's... Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's one of the most mind-blowing things that I've come across. Um, and that thing, that thing you posted the other day on, on Instagram with the, the big graph where you see all the crossover and reference to other scriptures in, in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, that, that's crazy, mm. you know? 
like the Bible, the Bible in a way, it, it reads as, um, as some people analogize it. It's like a poem of God's love for us. It's, it's all about, I suppose, that man lives in this fallen state, which that's one of the things I think a lot of people struggle to come to grips with. This idea that man is in a fallen state and that because of that, you know, we're automatically born sinners. I think a lot of people, I suppose, they look at that idea and they think, well, that's unfair. And mm. I suppose if there's one truth about life that I think there is, it's that life is not fair. <laughs> yeah, so true. So true. But um, Which is you exactly know, I, why... You, yeah. yeah right. Sorry, no, what are you saying? Uh, which is exactly why no matter what cards you, you're dealt, no matter what cards you're given, you've got two options. You can either sit there, become stagnant or wallow in self-pity or go backwards or you can go, this is exactly what I've got. I'm just going to make the most of it and try and adapt and survive and thrive. Mm. The hierarchy of needs, so to speak, work your way up. Yeah. yeah. I guess like for me too, like similar to, similar to you, I, I grew up, I grew up Christian um, with a Christian family. And by the time I was a teenager, I wanted nothing to do with it <laughs> because I mean, mm. you, you know, you look, you look out in the world, it's like, well, I want to do all these things. And wh- wh- why can't I do that? Because my, my parents raised me to be this and, you know, according to some book, I'm not allowed to do that. Who even wrote that book? How would you even know that there's any truth to it? You know, asking all these questions. But I think what I did have and is I remember sort of being younger, the first time dedicating my life to Christ is when you actually have that feeling and that experience of God, it, it really is undeniable. And that was always sort of in the back of my mind. It's like, he's definitely real. Like he's definitely real. Like I knew it was, but it's kind of like I turned like a blind, a blind eye to it. I suppose at some point in my life, I was like, well, yeah, God's definitely real, but does it have to be Jesus? Does it have to be the Bible? And that's, that's, what, that's what perked a lot of questions up for me. So I, I went searching in a whole variety of places. I, I, I looked left, right, and center. I, was, I suppose what I was trying to find was a version of there's a God that's real, but it doesn't have to be through Jesus. And ultimately what that led me back to was... I suppose the fundamental truth of Jesus. And then since I've been back there, the more I look into this stuff, the more I find myself continually blown away by it. It, it mm. really is crazy, but um, yeah. So <laughs> and it is a journey though, isn't it? Like you're not going to get the answer overnight. Um, and certainly for me, um, it's been, a, it's been a hell of a journey. Like, and I'm still on the journey to this day. And I think the issue and the problem with, with me is I don't want to, um, and this is just a personal thing, I don't want to label myself at, as a Christian um, knowing full well that I won't give that label justice. I know I'm a drastically imperfect human being and the moment that I give myself that label, there's a standard that I need to set and a standard that I need to keep in order to be a, an advocate for that belief and um, I haven't felt comfortable for quite some time um, in, in, in fully devoting myself to be able to ha- hold that standard, if you know what I mean. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why even my mum would be like, you still believe in God and Jesus, right? But yeah, yeah. She's like, when are you getting baptized? And I'd be like, ah, oh, don't ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> I exactly. eventually got, ba- yeah. I eventually got baptized last year, but I'll say I've still been very imperfect since. Um, but my favorite quote it's the nature is, of being human though, isn't it? But my favorite quote is, um, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm Christian. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. But that's very true. Just on the um on the faith thing, um, there's a, and we talk about sorry the, the benefits of faith um in a in a day and age where people are struggling with mental health more than anything, mm. and we, I know we touched on it to start with, but there's this analogy and it's all through the Bible, um sort of hidden in in places, and um it's that. It's that God will never give you anything that you can't handle. Yeah. And I didn't really un- understand that, but, but philosophy talks about it too. And they use the analogy of the, um, the light and dark principle. So these days we've, we've tamed nature. Um, we've got Mother Nature at our, at our beck and call. If we snap our fingers, we get a burger. If we, you know, we can order McDonald's on Uber Eats and it rocks up to our door. And we've, we're living like kings. You know, there's, there's kings in the past that, hasn't had, that haven't had the luxuries that we've had today. We've got running tap water and a flushing toilet. Yet, as a society, we're the most unhappy society that, that's, ever, that's ever been. Now, I think, personally, it's because we run towards comfort, comfort and don't run towards uncomfort. And the reason I say that is because you can't appreciate light without dark you can't appreciate pain without pleasure and i use the steak analogy i love steak and when i have a steak one steak it's it's an absolute thrill it satisfies me it satiates me it, it i enjoy the taste it's just great if you give me two steaks i might enjoy the second one but i'll start to get sick of it three steaks is painful and four steaks is torture you know eventually if you keep feeding yourself with with the things that would usually make you happy, they'll become things that will that will detract from your life quality. So everything is everything is balance and everything is moderation. And I think that what's happened as a society is that we've become so comfortable, we've we've satiated we've oversatiated ourselves with comfort. Mm. Um, so much to the extent that nothing makes us happy anymore and we don't get any satis- satisfaction. And, and the Bible talks about this in a very subtle way about watching your worldly desires. If you mm. oversatiate yourself in, with, with, with lust or with um, food, you know, gluttony and all this stuff, you're just making life worse for yourself and you're actually going towards your own living hell. Because life sucks when nothing makes you happy. You're living in hell. You might have everything, and you see it with famous people. They've got all the money in the world, but they still want to take drugs and, and end up you know, committing suicide and things like that. So the balance and, and running from your worldly desires and your desire as human to oversatiate is one of the keys to living a prosperous, fulfilling, and happy life. Um, and one of the acts of voluntarily choosing to seek discomfort in order to grow and become better actually brings back your balance of, ha- of happiness back to ground zero. This is yeah. one of the reasons why I'm a massive advocate for the Wim Hof Method. Every single day I have a freezing-ass cold shower. I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely fucking hate it. But the beauty of it is that I decide, I decide no matter how much my body hates it, that I'm going to do it anyway, and I bring my my body back to ground zero in terms of survival. The only thing you can think about when you're immersed in freezing cold water is breathing and getting warm and surviving and 
sucking in the air to try and survive and and then and you know breathing and moving to try and get the blood flowing and then you you do that with his um, breathing method and you realize that you can control your physiology you can control your chemistry by breathing and you can reach a state of almost enlightenment and bliss by choosing to do something that's uncomfortable for 30 seconds because no one likes to go (sighs) it's not that great and you feel lightheaded which i've kind of gotten to stage which I like and you get tingly but then there's this moment where you realize you can survive without breath for three minutes I did four minutes the other day and it was four just minutes. like yeah four minutes I got so I've been doing it since 2017 so I've got quite good at it I think. now after four minutes of not breathing and then all of a sudden you suck in all of this air your body just gets this amazing sense of like like high because your oxygen just gets flooded again and, and your, your brain goes into like, comes out of survival mode back into a normal state of breathing, which is commonly neutral. And you learn to, to really appreciate the, the neutral um, chemistry of your body. Even just mm-hmm. breathing, I've learned to love from doing that method. Um, and that's, that's something that we all take for granted every day, just breathing. That's, that's, that's really, really yeah. interesting. Um, and four minutes without breath, like, <laughs> whoa, okay. That's, that's quite a bit of time. Um, yeah. it, it's easier. A lot of people get surprised when they do the Wim Hof method because the first time they do it, they might think, oh, I can hold my breath for about 30 seconds. First time you do it, you probably hold, hold your breath for a minute. Legit. And then the second time you do it, so you do it in cycles. So I'll, I'll just explain it for everyone um, listening. What it is is 30 big inhalations, 30 to 60, depending on how, how far you want to go with it. I'd recommend starting with 30. And you're laying down or you're sitting down, whatever, and then you breathe into the top of your lungs, suck in as much oxygen as you can, and then just let it go. You don't have to suck it all out completely so you've got nothing left in your lungs. Just breathe in and let it go to, to where your body's comfortable. Then breathe in again and then, then breathe in again. And it's the more you suck oxygen in, the more your chemistry starts to change and you flood your body with oxygen. Your extremities get get filled and they start to tingle. Your lips start to tingle. Your teeth start to feel funny. You start to get lightheaded. But if you keep pushing into it and keep pushing past that, you reach a an almost like an oxygen high. Then what you do is you clear your lungs of all your breath with a big breath out. This is after the 30 seconds. Breathe out and just hold. And your body can survive without breathing for quite a long time because you've, you've, you've changed the chemistry in your body and you've, you've allowed your body to become completely alkaline. So we naturally function at a very acidic state due to the food that we eat, due to the lack of sleep, mm. due to the, the chemistry of our brain and the way that we always put undue pressure on ourselves and things like that. And all of a sudden, when you, al- when you make your body naturally become alkaline through breath, you just you feel like a, a completely different person. During that hold, most people can hold their breath on the first time they do it for one minute on the first round, two minutes on the second round, and even up to three minutes of the, on, the, on the third round. That's a long time to hold, you know, just to go without breathing. Then what happens is you do that massive suck in and you push into your belly and you feel the air hit your diaphragm, expand your diaphragm, then your lungs. Then you feel the air come up to your neck and then you push it. It's hard to explain, but you kind of push it up into your head and you just feel this natural sense of like 
high. It's like I've never done any, any drugs, but I imagine sort of DMT. The people that have um, have described the breathing method who have also done drugs say it's a lot like a DMT experience. And then like when you finish the whole thing, yeah, DMT legit. Because you're getting outside of the realm, the realms of your normal physiology. Your normal mm. physiology says breathe in oxygen only as much as you need it. So when you do exercise, you breathe in more oxygen because you're using it. What happens if you breathe in oxygen when you don't need it? How much, how much of your brain are you going to use that you don't usually use? How much of your senses are you going to feel that you don't usually sense? Your whole physiology becomes heightened because you've given it the one thing that it thrives off, and that's oxygen. We know this because without oxygen, we're dead. Mm. So if you flood it and experience life filled with oxygen and, and at a higher level of alkalinity, um, things just seem to actually work out. You can hold your breath for longer. You can survive the cold. You outperform what you would usually do. If you do the breathing method and then you do push-ups, you can, you can do at least, I think it's like 10, 10 more push-ups than you usually do. They, mm. they did a test on people. I know it's like a percentage-wise, but say you do 10 push-ups normally, you can do 20. And it's because all of a sudden your muscles have got all this oxygen to work with, and so they outperform what they usually perform. And Wim Hof, the guy that created this, he's broken that many world records, um, climbing Mount Everest in nothing but shorts and, and surviving, mm. yeah, surviving um, in the cold for two hours without changing his body temperature or from just learning his physiology and breathing in this way. So it's cool. (laughs) That's really cool. I want to actually take you back and ask you a question because, look, I did study DMT for a little while. I never actually um, tried it, and I think I'm a little bit too scared to try it. But one of the things that I understand from it is that people have these crazy visionary experiences, and one of the more common themes is if people have a breakthrough, they go to the other side and meet entities. Are you saying that when you've done the Wim Hof, you've had some form of visionary experience or? Shit, yeah. Yeah, man. Like, like what, what have you seen? So the first couple of times I did, so I dabbled in yogic breathing. I think it's called yogic fire breathing first where I did meditations and I knew that there was a strong relationship between our breath and and heightened state of consciousness. When I started dabbling with the Wim Hof method, um, it's really hard to explain because it's, it's going to sort of defy the laws of logic um, mm. But logic can only take us, you know, somewhere in the physical world. Some things are, are metaphysical. So what I, what I kind of, the first time I ever did this breathing exercise, I realized straight away that I, there's a lot more of my body, um, that, you know, physiology and things that I haven't ever sensed that I, that is there and that I can sense. I, you know, you can feel the tips of your fingers, but how often do you feel like you're floating? You know, how often do you feel blood rushing down into your extremities? And, you know, it's always there. It's always happening. When you're unconscious, you breathe. And then when you're conscious about your breath, you're still breathing, but it's happening when you're not thinking about it as well. So your body is doing all these things um, without you even knowing them. And what happened with the, the first time I tried this is that I started to realize that my body is acting on its on its own it's acting with its own mind in a way you know my blood's pumping without me voluntarily saying pump you know and so that was that's what happened the first cycle I ever did the second cycle I 
I started to think about um, where my consciousness lies, and I start and and then it was more like the third cycle where I started to go. Okay, so my my brain's working. I'm thinking. My body's working. It's doing its business. It's my heart's pumping blood, and and my fingers are, are functioning and that. But hold on a minute. There's something going on behind all this that's also happening, and I started to observe. As the just just be the observer, and observe my body working, and observe my mind working, irrespective of being in it. And it's a hard thing to describe, but essentially, I came to the conclusion in this oxygen high that I'm not just my body, and I'm not just my mind, but there's an intelligence that compri- comprises all of it that I am. That is where I believe the soul is. The soul is an observer. It's observing you think because you can, I can sense, I can go, oh, hey, right now I'm thinking about, about this, this bottle of water. But I can also think about why I'm thinking about the bottle of water, mm. you know, and that's, that's so you, you recognise that your mind is doing one thing but you can also observe your mind doing one thing. And so... It sounds stupid, but after doing that cycle for the first time, I remember looking at a glass of water and just staring at it for a long, long time and thinking there's so much more to this world that I can't see or feel or touch or out-logic or out-measure and some things that science just can't tell me. And the only way I'm going to get there or come to a conclusion or come to a realisation of it is by moving outside or, or taking my physiology and my ability to think and feel outside of the realms of just my body, and, I, and then I also saw a lion in a tree, which was you weird. saw you, you saw a what? A lion in the tree. In the tree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember. Just, just, yeah. No, sorry, you go. <laughs> Explain this. Okay, so one of the things in the meditation, I, I thought, okay, so now that I've I've had this experience, I'm going to come back and just look through my eyes into my eyelids, All right? And usually you just see black. But um, what would happen if I didn't have eyes? What would be my sense of sight if I didn't have eyes? I was like, I would have no, no roadmap to even think about what sight is. But, but, but in zooming in past just the blackness of my eyelids, I started to get images popping up and, and I was in a dark room at the time. I wanted to do it dark. I didn't want to be affected by sound or senses or anything. And the longer I sat there in this in this state, and the more cycles I did, the more I reached a stage where I'm gone. Just because it's not happening, you know, I'm not seeing a lion in a tree. My my imagination's doing that, but but really, your senses and what you're observing and what's coming through your eyes and getting translated through your brain, it's it's only ever subject to what your what your physiology is. So the beautiful thing about your consciousness is it's not subject at all to your physiology and your ideas and your imagination and your your vivid sense of memory and amazing sense of, of creation is outside of the physical realm. And so lions in trees was the first thing that came, came to my head and I have no idea why. And so you saw like a vivid vivid sort of image of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And then, and, I, and and then before, I woke up. <laughs> and then before that, you said something about like observing your mind thinking. Are you saying you had like an outer body type experience like or not quite at that yeah. level? No, I, w- I would say that. I would say that for a minute there, 
Um, I was me, perspective of of what my senses have told me I am, of what my parents have told me I am, of what school has said I am, of what my eyes tell me and my my ears tell me and my nose tell me and my taste tells me. Because they tell you that you're a human named Jesse. They tell you that you're a human named Zach. But if you don't have any of that for a second and and you come to it with the ignorance of a child, what are you? You're simply consciousness. Simply yeah. I am. You think. Interesting. That's, mm. that's very, very interesting. Um, Trippy, huh? <laughs> there's something I want to talk about, but uh, first I want to put a disclaimer here. Mum, um, if you're listening, please turn off right now. <laughs> <laughs> um anyways um and look probably shouldn't be telling a police officer this but it's not like it's not actually that big a deal um a couple of years ago when i was on my own sort of journey and um I, I was i was experimenting a little bit i was trying to i was trying to figure out the intricacies of life um i'd been listening to a little bit too much terence mckenna um i don't know if mm. you're familiar with him at all no he he he's i've he heard the name a, he, he was a bit of a you might call him a bit of a philosopher, but he's more what people would describe as a psycho not. So he was somebody that was exploring the realm of psychedelics. <laughs> and, sort of like Sam Harris, kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit like that. And yeah. one of the things that he recommends is um is to eat five dried grams of mushrooms in silent darkness and <laughs> go along for the ride, which mm. is crazy. It's it's absolutely crazy. I, I can't say I'd recommend that. Um Terrence McKenna, look, you, you recommend that or you like I can't say I recommend it. But I was I was, it made me curious. It made me a little bit curious. So um, once upon a time, I sat in my room. I think I, ate a, I was trying to work my way up. So I thought, I was like, let's, let's just try like three and a half. Let's try like three and a half. And um, look, what, what transpired was a bit of a strange experience. Um, I saw many different shapes, colors. Um, <laughs> and in particular, I got lectured by a tree that was telling me, you're trying to find answers and this is not how you do so. Like there are no answers. Life is as, com- is as complicated as you want to make it or it's as simple as, it, as you want it mm. to be. But um, one of the sort of things that happened was I had this moment where it felt like what was driving my body was outside of here, outside of this world. Mm. It was like this awareness of like, whatever it is that animates this body, it's not here. Mm. And that was really crazy. And then I remember like I thought about it. Um, like I was like, I was playing a video game and like, this is later on and I'm playing this video game and I'm playing this character. And then I, and then I thought about it and it was like the same way I'm playing this character here is the same way my consciousness is playing my body now. And like it, mm. it just like slapped my reality in the face. I was like, okay, damn, there's, there's too much we don't know. <laughs> That's why the matrix is such a, is such a um, amazing film. Because they're the, they're the first, I feel like they're the first people to ever go, um, you're just a machine in here running, running the machine that is your body. Mm. And then like to untap from that and to unplug is this massive epiphany. And I think that's what enlightenment is. When the yogis talk about or Buddhists talk about enlightenment, they talk about this um, unplugging moment where you realise that you are not just your body and not just your mind. And the only way to get there, it's not a time thing because you can sit there for eight hours and you can still be in your head. Um, or like a lot of these yogis that talk about their enlightenment um, experience, it happened in a split second when they just realised 
everything that I know is 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 subject to the restraints that I that I place on myself in my own mind mm. and in my own body. And that's it's very interesting that you say that because like I, I've tried to get there, obviously naturally, to a state where I'm 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 living in in a in bliss, just complete mm. contentment. Um, I wouldn't say I've got there yet. I've I've certainly come closer based on the methods that I that I've sort of sought. And I think that there's certainly a spot where the yogis and, and the mystics from India, um, they've got something going on there. Mm. They can't explain it with science, but a lot of people are drawn to India to go and sit with the yogi for hours and hours and hours and just to hear him speak. Like one of my favourite people to listen to is a guy called Sadhguru, who is a, a mystic from India. And, and I've done a few of his sort of like guided meditations um, and one of them is all is just repeating that you're not your body and you're not your mind with breathing exercise. And then after time, you sort of get that feeling, you know. If you keep telling yourself that you aren't your body and you aren't your mind, eventually you start believing it. And then when you start believing it, you open up your mind, which is usually closed because the whole your whole upbringing has told you that you are just physiology that you're just a, a lump of meat that happens to, to survive and, and live through chemistry and biology. But when, when the Bible says, uh, like, Jesus raised Adam from the dust and then he breathed life into him, that's where the difference between us and a tree who is also living also breathes carbon dioxide and, suck and, and, and breathes in carbon dioxide and breathes out air also has, you know, the ability to suck nutrients and drink water. This is the difference between a tree and us is that mm-hmm. we are, we've had the breath of life, the soul. There's, yeah. there's more to us yeah. than just physiology. Yeah. So and that's, very that's, interesting. That's a, that's a really, really deep idea. And this, this is something that I've, I've, I've been thinking about on and off over the past couple of years, but I was actually thinking about it again today. So once again, great timing on this point. Um, Something that like I've really been thinking about is what does separate us from like other living beings? And what I ultimately sort of draw the conclusion to is the idea that we are made in the image of God. And like you read the Bible and you read the book of John, it's like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word created everything. And how did God create everything? He created it through speech. When God spoke, things came into existence. And I think it's really crazy because if you think about us as humans, we create things. And how is it that we come about creating things? It starts as a thought. Then you might write it down mm. on a piece of paper. You might have a conversation about it. But if you never, I suppose, write it down or talk about it, it just stays and dies in your mind, whatever that idea is. But when you actually speak or write it out, you use language, you bring it into existence. And like as mm. humans, we sort of have we have language that other animals don't have. We have ways we can communicate with each other. And if we speak different languages, we, you know, we're able to learn each other's languages. We're able to communicate with each other, but it's ultimately through the use of language that we create things, which funnily enough is the same way that God created everything in the beginning. He spoke things into existence. And Mm. ultimately I truly think that's, kind of what it means to be made in the image of God. Like God, we are creators. I don't necessarily think it means our physical body, looks like what God looks like. It could be that, but 
I don't think so. I think it's more so it's like our spirit and our abilities mm. are. And then I think, you know, going like sort of even deeper, you know, a lot of people get into positive affirmations and, you know, stuff like that. And you start reading the Bible and it's like the power of life and death is within the tongue. It's like, there's this mm. idea that our words are really, really powerful. And I've started to really try and take that seriously because like, if you think about it, your words can make or break other people. Mm-hmm. Like you could, you could, you could put somebody down and like, if you really think about it, if you, if you start pulling somebody down with your words, like you could be putting curses on that person because they will start believing that. And ultimately, um, when you start believing things about yourself, that's who you become. And that's why I suppose it's really important, I guess, to say, I suppose, to think and talk positively about yourself and to other people. Mm. There's, a, there's a thought experiment that Socrates did um, when he talks about something having an essence and, and he used it to describe what I believe is the soul. So you can have a, a metal knife, you can have a wooden knife, you can have a picture of a knife, you can have a plastic knife and everyone will tell you oh, that's a knife but they're completely different things and they're different sizes and shapes and there can be, you know, artistry on some. Some can be made of both wood and metal but the essence of it is that it is a knife. And when you change the properties of the knife, it no longer becomes a knife. It's lost its essence and it becomes something else, like a table or whatever. So humans, our essence, uh, I believe that we have an essence in that being our soul. And the way that we know that, that humans are unique is because even if I, if I got a, a robot and I called it Zach and I gave it um, metal bones instead of regular bones and I, I gave it oil instead of blood and it, it, it spoke like you and talked like you and was the same height and the same weight and it and it was programmed to say exactly what you're saying it would be doing it based on us writing algorithms but i if i destroyed it i'd still be destroying property i wouldn't be committing murder and this is the the robot thought experiment that it, even if you you create a, a being to a t that, that looks, sounds, acts exactly like a human, it doesn't have the human essence mm. because robots are just algorithms, not mm. souls. And that's mm. where we differ, I think. Very, very mm. interesting. No, And I think, and I, I truly think like that is, I suppose, what, what pulls us apart from humans. It is that essence. It is that this idea of a soul. Um, and like it really is just like this really sort of deep idea. And then, you know, this whole idea that it's like, it's a, the reason why we can't be satisfied by material things. And I just want to check in that you're still there. You're frozen on my screen at the moment. This is what, this is what happens. Work that are greater than ours. If you, if you, if you speak too much truth, they try to shut you down. <laughs> Don't take the Bill Gates vaccine. Oh, <laughs> is sorry. <it> China? Is <laughs> Don't, China? <laughs> All right, I think, are we back? Are we finally back? I you think didn't download TikTok, did you? I think, I, I, oh, I, think I did. Gary V said to download TikTok, but I never actually used it. Sorry, Gary. Um, <laughs> yeah, I no, think, don't do it. I think no. we're back. Um, one of these ideas um, that, that um, I've, I've kind of just been cultivating, this one's more recently, but, you know, and it's got biblical foundations as well. This idea that like, and you touched on this earlier, that nothing material can ever satisfy us. I think that's that's really true because we have these material bodies, like we do live inside these material bodies, and 
we need to do things to satisfy it. Um, you know, we need to do things to, you know, keep it alive, for example. But ultimately, the things that please this body will never satisfy us because our essence or our soul isn't satisfied by these material things. And that's where I think, um, I suppose, getting back to the Bible and Christianity, touching on what you were saying earlier about how, like, um, you know, you can have a steak and it's good and then you have four steaks and, you know, you get sick of it, right? And we, we, we try to gratify ourselves materially and that works to an extent because we have to, you know, we have to feed our body. We have to give it substance so it can live. But ultimately, sometimes, ultimately, we can chase our desires for our body. We can chase our lust. We can chase our gluttony. We can chase our desire to escape reality, you know, through various means, right? We can chase these things, but they will never satisfy us. They'll never leave us whole. Nothing mm. material will ever do that. And, you know, another thing, point you touched on earlier was like, you know, there are celebrities that have everything, but, you know, you find out that they kill themselves. And it's like, mm. why? What, what was wrong with them? They had everything. And ultimately, one of the ideas of the Bible, I suppose, is, is that we're spiritually dead and in having Christ, we're made spiritually alive and only God can give our spirit life. And our human essence, our soul, we can only get that life from God, from having communion with God. We can satisfy our material body as much as we like, but we will never get the spiritual satisfaction without God. And I think that that, it really, it's one of the things that like, as I get older, I really see and I feel more. And I notice like at times in my life, when I'm at my worst, like I'm not praying, I'm not reading my Bible, like I'm not having communion with God. And when I do have that communion, when I am like actively making an effort to pray and seek God, like that's when I feel like I have the most life. Mm. and you know when you read the teachings of jesus you know he says you know the things that you know don't love the things of these world you know the things of this world will pass away and so will our bodies our bodies will pass away the things of this world will pass away and you know it's our soul that's everlasting and god is everlasting and only he can give life to that Mm. so true so true mate you should be on a pulpit somewhere But one of the things I suppose that I, it's like a, it's like a struggle with Christianity is like knowing sort of like what the limits are, I guess, because, you know, you have the law, you have what's in the Bible, but not everything's like clear cut. Like, you know, something that I'll see Christians, uh, I suppose, debate um, to and from is like, is cannabis like a sin, for example? Mm. You know, it's like, Mm. well, it's natural, it's a herb and, you know, it's a medicine. And then it's like, okay, but then on the other side, People are using this as a drug. They're using it to escape this world. So does that make it a sin? You know, the Bible doesn't mm. spell out some of these things, you know, and something that I suppose I've like tried to battle with in my head was, you know, all right, there's this thing that grows in the ground that can give people these profound experiences. You know, it's nature, it's natural, right? But the Bible might also suggest that, you know, ingesting something that's going to give you a visionary experience is sorcery, which is an abomination. And it's like, where, where, where where's the lines like where's the limit some of these things you know there's no well, i mean cut. not everything not everything that grows from the ground is good for consumption mm. some things are poisonous some things are good um and like i've got to be i've got to put out a disclaimer here that um where i'm from cannabis is illegal mm. and i enforce that and that's that's just how it is so but um i can see a, dif- a definite shift in the in the world um where I think it's there's a, a state in Canada that has recently legalised cannabis um, and I'd be really interested to see what their crime statistics are because um, it, gets, it certainly gets passed as a, as a mellow drug. 
Um, but in saying that, it, it also there is evidence to show that it's it's sort of like the, the, the gateway drug that gets you into further things. I guess if, if you know what I mean. But it's it's probably there's a there's a bit of an educational barrier there. There's a bit of a we haven't got the science to back up, you know, or justify legalizing it at least in in our state and things like that. Um, but it definitely it's it's illegal these days. So I don't condone it. Um, but I have when I when I studied Rastafarianism. I looked into it and I looked at their justification for using the sacred herb to um, reach a sort of higher um, higher state or connection with God or whatever you may call it. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. And when you look at the effects of alcohol on the human body and how it's made and the effects it has on the human body, you've got to think that's not a very healthy drug and um, it's probably one of the biggest causes of, of you know, um, cardiac problems and, and obesity and all the rest as well so any yeah i've got to be careful what i say but I, I feel like there is some things out there that if you create a blanket rule and say yep it's all good it's green and, and you're right to go that there's potential for it to cause long-term problems because not not because I, there'd be good people that would that would only use it to for example, help with anxiety or to help with the, with pain in the body. Um, I know that medicinal marijuana is used to help with pain in the body, and that's legal, and that's um, there's certainly uses for that um, in some in some places. So there's good people that are going to use it for the right reasons, and like anything, there's obviously bad people that are going to use it for the wrong reasons and and things like that. So I don't know the science, I don't know the the statistics with the you know with it being a gateway drug and that. Um, all I know is that I that I have to enforce the law, and, and that's what I do. So it'll be interesting to see which way it goes. Yeah, I hope I that was a, I hope that was a diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for me, I was I was kind of looking at it as more like a, from like a spiritual or from like a biblical perspective because you know if you're a Christian, you know you don't want to break God's law. I mean, what does Jesus say? If you love me, keep keep my commandments, and you know to love God is also the first commandment. So <laughs> God is a temple. I suppose I suppose when it comes to some of these things. I think one of the conclusions I draw is um, it depends on how you're using it and whether you have control over some of these things or whether they have control over the person using it because ultimately you're not supposed to establish false idols, which as an idea is that you're not supposed to have something that has control over you or something that you put over the place of God. So, you know, for I mean, like, for example, you know, drunkenness is a sin, but, you know, Jesus frequently was known to go and have wine and his first miracle was turning water into wine. So it's this idea that, you know, you know, if you have control over yourself, you can have one or two glasses of wine. You don't need to go get drunk and escape the world. And, you know, you know, we all know what happens when you get drunk. You're a police officer. I'm sure you've dealt with many people under the influence of alcohol and, you know, it doesn't, it's not pretty. No, it's not. And people do silly things when they're drunk. Um, And, you know, even even sex, and I know, like, I don't know if we, we can go here, but we're going to go here now. Any other brought it up? <laughs> sex can be a beautiful, beautiful thing, um, not just for reproduction, but mm. for, for <laughs> you know, desires, and you know, it's um, it feels good, and and it can be a, a loving thing, and it can be a beautiful thing, and it can bring people together, or it can be used destructively. And it can be used for self, 
selfish reasons and, and self-pleasure and it can be even used um, as a non-consensual horrific way to torture someone as, as I've seen in my job. And so anything without control, like you said, that was a very, very good point you made there where is it in control of you or are you in control of it? And I think one of the biggest issues as a man in this day and age is that we can't or we don't have a good grasp of controlling our desires in that respect. And, you know, you can blame it on, uh, you know, what you see on the TV or the movies you watch or porn or whatever you got to do. But at some stage you have to go, this is something I need to take control of, otherwise it's going to control me. Same with alcohol. You either need to take control of alcohol consumption or it's going to control you. And so that same rule applies with um, you, you, your ability to exercise. And I know that especially during this, this sort of corona stuff, you know, I haven't, I haven't had to, I haven't been able to go to a gym. So for me, um, working up the, the motivation to get off the couch and do 30 push-ups on the floor and then go hang off a bar outside or go hit the bag outside and things like that, it's been a different thing because I'm not going to a place to work out. I've had to control my laziness. Mm. And so you are bang on on that, on that topic, I think. Does it control you or do you control it? And it's very biblical that um, that thought. Mm. Yeah, and like ultimately, I think like a lot of people. I think one of the things I suppose that people don't, I suppose, sort of like about Christianity is, I suppose, this idea of sin and particular things being sin. But you know, at the end of the day, like some of these things, you can lose yourself to them. They will take control of you and they'll bring your life down. And I think one of the ideas of not sinning is that some of these things we don't know how bad they could be for us. And if you're avoiding sin, then I suppose in a way you're living your best life and if you're and if you're like living in sin you're letting particular things take control of you and they can very quickly bring you down and the idea of being christian isn't that you're never going to sin again but i suppose the idea is that you're always trying to do better and you're always saying hey god look i'm sorry i know i should have done that give me the strength to do better next time and it's like Mm. this recurring process it's the same with like life you know you're never going to get success without failure and like christianity kind of has that in its own walk it's like every time you know you've missed the mark you just own up and then you carry on with it. Um, but you, you mentioned something that I don't know, I actually want to go on a little rant on because you, I think one of the Do biggest it. struggles that we have in our society these days is that we've become very, very hyper-sexualized. And I think part of it is that it's everywhere and it's in front of you everywhere. And, you know, one of, I think that it's a, like, all right, our sexual desires are very normal. It's part of being alive. And like, what was the first commandment? be fruitful and multiply. That was the first commandment. All right. So obviously, you know, we're given this sex drives and it helps prime us for survival without this, you know, libido is want to have sex. We wouldn't be reproducing. Right. But it's become very twisted. I remember sort of growing up being exposed to pornography at about 11 years old and people say, Oh, it's normal for young boys to watch pornography. Well, obviously because we have a sex drive, it's normal for us to want to see pornography but now there is a world of research that will show you just how bad it is. It messes with your dopamine receptors. It disturbs your mind. I listened to this psychologist. Um, I can't think of his name, but this guy studied the effects of pornography on the human brain. And what he was explaining was is how every single time you're watching pornography, you're getting a hit of dopamine, right? But as you continue to watch it, all right, the level of dopamine that your brain like 
receives begins to diminish. So what happens is people start getting into different things because, and what would happen is you would click on a porn video and the first thing that it does is it triggers anxiety and then it kind of like stimulates your adrenaline and your dopamine and all that kicks in. So as the dopamine hit gets lower and lower, people get into more extreme porn. And this is how people build fetishes for things that aren't even imaginable. And Mm. this is something... This is really disturbing. I think like one of the most searched porn categories is like sibling and step siblings, like incest. And it's like, what? What's going yeah, on? Right. And is there, there's a, probably a Tasmanian joke there, but we'll leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple of Tasmanians here. Look, there's nothing wrong with incest, but um, <laughs> no, there's plenty wrong with it. But it's like, I feel like, you know, through through normal the normalizing pornography, and you know, being like, yeah, you know, it's fine. Go watch porn. And you know, the other thing, you know, porn affects men. A lot of men that watch porn, they struggle. They get erectile dysfunction. That's you know, that's something that people have really, I suppose, looked into. But ultimately, I suppose what's happened is, as a society, we're misusing sex to a degree that now we treat each other like disposable assets. I don't like you know, as somebody who's engaged in casual sex. In, in this time, you know, I actually don't think it's very healthy for us. And I think when you take something like the emotion and like the connection, like the actual connecting with another person aspect out of sex, you're actually sort of destroying the act in itself. But like these days, you know, I suppose in a way to frame it, we're so selfish, we will use other people just to satisfy our flesh. And if you actually think about what the act of casual sex is, you're literally just using somebody else to wank. Like that is a perspective you can see it from. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I guess, judge anybody because, you know, these are things that I've done myself. But it's like, I suppose at some point, do we need to wake up? Like, are these things actually good for us? Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you on that. And I, I, I feel like this is why the, the whole, have you heard of NoFap? I heard about it on Joe Rogan. <laughs> I, I did whole, that for a little while. <laughs> yeah, no fat craze. It, it got really, really popular and the benefits were evident. Um, blokes were reporting that, um, you know, they feel better about themselves and they feel more in control of their bodies and their um, desires and their um, self-control has changed and things like that. And this is something that should be, should be promoted. Funnily enough, it's been, it's been talked about um, and... People like to put a spin on the Bible and say, oh, you know, you're putting constraints on yourself and, you know, all of this stuff by doing it. But actually, um, discipline is freedom. And mm. Jocko Willink says that. When, you, when you're disciplined and you're in control of your junk, the thing that is living between your legs that has a mind of its own, I think it gives you a freedom to, to be able to make decisions on your own terms and not based on the, the chemistry that that, that that comes with your desires to go and, and get your load off, so to speak. Mm. Um, and that's freedom. Freedom is not being trapped in the fact that you you have to get off in a certain way at a certain time um, daily, or you know, some people probably three times a day, whatever. It, you know, that's that you're trapped. There, there's mm. no um, you're not you're not living a better life by doing that. And I always I always think back to animals. Like, animals don't have sex that often, do they? Really? They have mm. seasonal sex. Um, and I, I've had a dog and it, 
Um, growing up, I had this dog that used to hump its, hump its teddy bear all the time. But, but generally speaking, um, because dogs don't have uh, the sense of imagination or access to, I don't even understand the internet and things like that. They don't, and, and, and movies and stuff, they don't have the exposure that we have. And so they're still relatively, animals are still relatively in control of their junk. And, and you can always relate things back to how they do it, I feel. Um, mm. Now, the, the question is, that, that gets raised with me at least, is that are we meant to be monogamists? And um, not, irrespective of what the Bible says, yes, right? The Bible says, yeah, you know. Um, but if you, you look at animals, they're not. So th- there's a debate that I had in my own head for a minute there. I was going, ah, oh, no, are we really and, 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 and why? But now looking at it and experience, sort of thinking and experimenting and listening to different people, I can see that, that sex is something that's so much more than just physical. I feel, you know, there's an old saying that it's like soul tying and, mm. and it's so much more than just emotion and physiology. You're, you're tying yourself to another person and usually um, at the stage that you're having sex, you probably can, you should be, and I'm not saying anyone's, <laughs> I'm saying not perfect here, but like there's a commitment there. You're committing to them and you're saying no matter what happens, this is what the act of marriage is, no matter what happens, I'll stick with you. Mm. And there's something beautiful in that. And, and the sanctity of marriage um, is getting lost these days. And we know that there are a lot more people getting divorced and a lot more people that are sort of like cheating and all that kind of thing. Um, and so we've lost the sanctity of marriage. And that, with that sanctity comes the sanctity of sex as well. And I think they're so, so important and integral in 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 formulating a relationship that's actually going to last the test of time and then you're going to get thrown challenges like raising kids or thrown challenges like a spouse getting sick and you want to know that your spouse um, is, going to, is going to stick by you. And so I don't know, I went a bit of a rant there. But, yeah. I know. I, I researched I, I really, this. I want to build on your rant here. I'm sorry, you were going to make another point though. I don't want to cut you there. Yeah, I was going to say I've really... Re- uh, I'll be careful what I say as well. I'm, I'm, I'm recently single and I've really um, restructured my thought on marriage now. Mm. It, it forced me to find what, what I'd actually really be looking for and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's still a, I'm still a work in progress and I've still got a lot to learn. But I think that the moment that you, that you treat um, marriage and sex without, without importance and without um drastic you know it's a very significant act Mm. that and yeah if you if you downgrade it you're only doing yourself a disservice finished and look there's there's a a few points that i suppose that i do really want to make here um like you know i grew up a christian i lost my faith for a while i've come back right in my time let's just say I've had plenty of premarital sex, right? And it's only been about the last year or so that I've been taking my faith seriously again. And one of the things that I've been kind of grappling with is like, well, what is sexual immorality? And what is, you know, having sex before marriage? Like, how, like, and how does somebody live in a world like today but abide by those types of things? But like, here's a couple of things. I don't like what marriage has become. I don't like what marriage is. And if you actually think about it technically, Marriage is a contract between two people and the state. Like that's mm. 
that's what marriage is. And I almost feel like, and I've heard people say this before, and this is more what I've conclusion I've sort of come to. It's the idea that when you actually engage in sex with somebody, that is marriage and that's entering into a covenant. When you have sex with somebody, you're like entering into a covenant with them. And that is actually mm. the act of marriage there. So then I guess, and then you, you raise this point of like, are we supposed to be monogamous? So, and then you said, well, animals aren't monogamous. So the first thing I'm going to say is maybe the point where we differ is when we have sex, we're actually bonding with somebody spiritually. And because we have that extra spiritual layer, that's why we're supposed to maybe be monogamous as opposed to the animals that are supposed to, that are more polyamorous, you know? Mm-hmm. And I suppose the next point that I want to make here is I did some research into some statistics and look, this, this, this I, I've shared these statistics with a few people and it's scared them, but I'm just going to rail them off here. So it's like less than two sexual partners. It's like 80% chance of successful marriage, right? You get to like three to five, it's like 60%. You get between like five and eight, it's like 50%. And you get to the point where it's like 10 to 15 or like 15 plus, And it's like sub 30% chance of successful marriage. And it's just like, then look, those are just statistics based off one piece of research that I did work. Although it was, a, it was a quite a thorough piece of research, but I suppose the point is there does seem to be this idea that we are supposed to be monogamous. And then one of the other things I've heard as well is, you know, during the act of sex, you know, there's a bunch of chemicals and hormones being released, like oxytocin being one that's known as like the bonding hormone. And one of the ideas is the more that you share that experience with other people, um, I suppose the easier it is to be able to walk away with somebody. Like if you've only experienced that chemical with one person that forms a strong bond with them and you're more likely to stick it out with them. And I suppose, I suppose like moving forward with that, if you've had it with more and more people, it's much more easy to walk away with someone from someone. And I think the most cited reason for divorce at the moment by the statistics is dissatisfaction in marriage. It's not actual, it's not infidelity. It's not abuse. It's dissatisfaction in marriage. So something happens in the relationship. There's a dissatisfaction and people are willing to walk away. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be able to walk away from marriage, but I suppose if you're going to take the step that you're going to commit to somebody and enter into a contract with the state with that person, you know, you're going to say, I'm going to be with you forever, but the relationship's not panning out the way you like, you know, you'd want to hope if you married somebody that they'd actually want to stick through those hard times Mm. with you. But, you know, if you just literally go by the main reason why people are getting divorced, that's not, that's not what's happening. And I do think Mm. part of that is people are having much more sex and a lot more sexual partners in their lifetime these days. And I think that is playing a big factor in terms of the breakdown of relationships and marriages in our modern day society. And look, ultimately what happens is if a marriage breaks down and there's kids involved, that's a breakdown of the family. Mm. And it has and, a flow on effect. Yeah. yeah and, and that actually has a flow on effect at society at large. So like this really is a serious issue. And I think it goes all the way back to because our society is so hypersexualized, like I suppose we walk into a trap. We walk into the trap of, of believing that having all this sex, I suppose all, all the sex you want is normal. And I suppose the other thing as well is it conditions us to want more of it because when you see it, it feeds your appetite. Mm. Like one of the mm-hmm. things I did um, probably about a year or so ago was like, I realized I had a bunch of women I was following on Instagram. They weren't like models or anything, but they were girls that just posted like a lot, a lot of, you know, like half naked material. And I was like, and I noticed like every single time I'm looking at this, like a part of me is like, oh yeah, damn. So I just started, if I realized that I didn't know the person or all they were posting was just them half naked, I just started unfollowing them. Cause I was like, I don't need 
this in my face all the time. Mm. And that, I think mm. that was probably at the and probably about a year before that was when I stopped watching pornography as well. And I will mm. say, like both of those things have had a big sort of impact on my life. Um, I've definitely got a lot more control of my junk than what I used to have. I don't have full control of it though. That's the other thing, you know. I'm sitting here, I'm saying all these things, but like yeah. at the same time, like I'm a victim of like I am a victim of my flesh. Like you know, I've just I've just literally bashed the idea of casual sex on this podcast, but I can't guarantee that that's not something I'll engage again in my lifetime because. I mean, look, you, it's, it's easy to pay lip service to these things, but sometimes they just catch you off guard. Mm, yeah, 100%, man. And I'm, I'm like, I'm the same boat. I, you know, it, the important thing is that we're both striving, Zach, I feel. You know, we're never going to be perfect because that's just the nature of humans. And since the beginning of time, since, since Cain and Abel, since uh, Adam and Eve and all that, we've, um, we've just been a consistent work in progress, both individually um, as families, as as nations, as generations, and uh, we're still we're still fucking up to this day, my friends. So, you know, I don't think it's going to change tomorrow. But the the difference is your heart and and your intentions. And um, I feel like we uh, the, the the difference between the layman and and someone that that makes a decision to try and be better um, every day. Is, is the difference between success and being stagnant. And uh, I feel if there is a God and he's a loving God and he does see your heart and you're trying, you're trying to know him and you're trying to fix your life and, and, and control your, your desires so you can you know, become a better example, then uh, you know, if, if there is a God that, that is all-knowing and all-powerful, then he'd see that. And so that's why I think it's all about intention and heart yeah. as well as belief because obviously we can't get past belief in the, in the Christian faith as well, Yeah, which is something I've also struggled with a little bit. That's the one thing that, that I guess holds me back. It's like you've got someone who's a great person who tries to do everything right and they're searching for the right God but they haven't found the right one yet and then they die. Does that mean that... They're doomed for eternity. I don't know. It's something I've That's, always struggled with. Yeah. It's, it's a question I still, I suppose, um, struggle with myself. And there's, there's really a lot that goes into it. But, um, you know, something that I feel like God revealed to me through prayer and through reading the book as, as well is this idea that this entire life is a test of faith. And I suppose what mm. God is looking for is the people that are going to actually have faith have faith to believe in God. And like, you know, the idea of the first sin. So the first sin, I suppose, the idea of the original sin came from Adam and Eve being lied to in the Garden of Eden, right? And they ate of the fruit. So they disobeyed the one commandment God gave them, right? But at another level, ultimately what that was, it was a lack of faith because they, the lack of faith was they didn't believe what God told them. And so mm. then this whole idea... This is why it's kind of I conceptualize this whole idea of Jesus and him being the redeeming quality, and all you need to do is believe in him. Is it's to get back to God, to get back to communion with God, you need to have faith and belief in Jesus. And mm. having belief in God is something I suppose that it's something that a lot of people battle with, and a lot of I feel like a lot of people they believe in God, but then they might not go as far as the idea of Jesus. Um, and, you know, the idea that if you don't believe in him, you know, you're damned for eternity, like that's an unbelievably 
sort of hard idea. And it's, it's, it's something that's hard to really digest. It's something that I still struggle to digest. It's something I've always struggled to digest. But I guess one of the other things as well is it says God will judge every single person according to their life. And, mm. that, and he will judge everybody according to their works as well. Um, the, and I suppose the difference is those who have Jesus will be judged not guilty. But those who, it says that those who don't believe are already judged guilty. But it also says that he's a fair God. And, he, mm. and I guess if everybody's being judged by their own life experience, if, I guess if, if somebody, I suppose, is, trying to, is truly trying to live right and they truly do have a good heart, God sees that. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say, does that, if they never hear about Jesus that does, and they don't accept that, then they might never go to hell. Like, it, it's a hard question, but I guess in my mind, I, I, I truly believe that God will give everybody a chance to get to know him. Otherwise, I don't think it'd be, it'd be right for, I suppose, for somebody that never heard about Jesus to die and go to hell. I mean, unless they were truly a bad person. I mean, like, you know, for example, like someone like Adolf Hitler, like, you know, you, you know if somebody didn't know God, but they were as evil as Adolf Hitler, like you'd hope they'd go to hell, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and just on that, the, um, I've lost my train of thought now. Sorry, mm. give me a second. But, I think you said something right before Hitler. What was that? Um, somebody that doesn't know God being sort oh, yeah. of judged. No, the hell thing. Yeah. So even even hell, right? So say say you scrap everything that we've just talked about, mm. and and you think, nah, stuff it. I'll um I'll just follow my worldly desires. I'll do exactly what my body says I want to do at any time it's, that that it wants to do it. And and that's not freedom. You slave to your to your want desire to drink alcohol and get absolutely shit faced. You're a slave to wanting to I don't know masturbate in your basement four times a day, and you're a slave to eating junk food every day because you've got desire and cravings for high calorie foods because you eat it every day. Man, you're living in hell. Mm. That's not a, that's not a life well lived, in my opinion. Um, and you know, there's irrespective of the afterlife. If, if if you get to the end of your life and you've lived it according to biblical principles, the Ten Commandments that you don't steal and you don't kill, and you know, say you you wait till marriage for sex, or you and you're faithful to your wife, and and you put God first, and all this. If you get to the end of that life and you die and you find out it's all lies, what have you lost? To me, that you've lived a, you've lived a great life. Whereas if you do the opposite of all that stuff, you steal, you kill out of aggression or, or greed, um, you know, and you're not in control of your junk and all that stuff. One, you're living in hell, but, but two, like you're going to find yourself in a situation where most likely you'll end, your life will end sooner than you want to anyway. And you'll get to the end of your life if we're right and go, Whoops. You know what I mean? Mm. Like if, if we're right, then all of this stuff matters drastically. Like not just our oh, life changing, like eternity changing. Mm. If we're wrong, well, we've still lived a good life in a weird <laughs> way. It's, and it's a weird way to look at it, but I think my, my grandfather said that, you know. Um, and this is why I always, I always fall back on, on the Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, I, I strive for them. I don't hit them every time, but I strive for it. You know, put God first and all that. And the, the money Jesus said, you know, the first, oh, sorry, the, 
his disciples went to him and said, um, what are the two most important commandments or one most important commandment? And he always said, put God first and treat your neighbour as, you, as yourself. Because if you do that, then all of the other ones sort of fall in. Yeah. He says, therein lies all the law. Love the Lord your God mm-hmm. with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Therein lies all the law. I remember reading that. That's and I remember the first time, like I kind of read that as an adult, sort of coming back to faith, and I really had to sit and like think about that. And I was like, that's such like an unbelievable idea. Mm. That like you know, if you, these are the only things that you need to do, and if you actually do think about it, everything else falls into place then. And mm. ult- like, like I suppose you know. And it's at the point where it's like, you know, if you're loving everybody else, you love yourself, you're not going to do anything against anybody else either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But right. um Very long. Yeah. Hey, right, we, we have we have been going for um we have been going for quite a while here. We've gone on, we've made it managed to get ourselves on um quite a big tangent. But I'll leave you what, just one more fact that might scare you. I don't know if you already knew this, but um, because I suppose we did we did touch on the topic of hell, which is very, very controversial topic. And I do agree, you know, if you're a slave to, if you're if you're a slave to your desires, you will live in some form of your own personal hell. But there is the other there's the but, and that is the J man, Jesus, spoke more mm-hmm. about hell than he did heaven. And hell is really? referenced more times in the Bible than heaven. And with that... And, that in, and in so many different ways as well, hey. Mm. Like different, yeah. different. like it's about Hades and then talks about hell as a fiery pit and then hell as an internal thing. And there was so many different... I guess that's where I've always struggled. It's like, what does he mean by it? Do you know what I mean? Mm. But that's so interesting. He talks about it more mm. like than, yeah. than heaven. But one of the conclusions as well that I, I guess I came to, and this was, this was when I was right when I came back to faith, right before I said, all right, I, I believe Jesus. I want to dedicate my life to Christ, right? And that was after, you know, living, doing my own thing for a while. And when I got started to get a deeper understanding, I guess, what sin was and how sin operates, I, I sort of realized that the type of person that I wanted to actually be all along was a Christian because, like you said before, like discipline is freedom. and I guess, you know, like like in the context of like, you know, let's say, you know, eating food isn't a sin, but gluttony is a sin. Drinking wine isn't a sin, but being drunk is a sin. And it's like this idea that, you know, if you want to, I suppose, live your best life, you want to have control over yourself. You want to be able to say, no, I'm not going to get drunk. No, I'm not going to overeat. Like, you know, mm. no, I'm not going to pleasure myself 15 times a day on Pornhub. Like I'm going to go out and live my best life. <laughs> yeah. And when I realized that, I was like, wait, the type of person that I want to be is a Christian after all. At first I thought I didn't want to be that because I had this perspective of like, well, if you're a Christian, you're just restricting yourself and you're limiting yourself. But it's not, you know, it's not that you can't have sex. It's not that you can't drink wine. It's not that you can't eat good and delicious food. It's that too much of any of those things or taken in the wrong context is going to be damaging to you. It's going to be damaging to, or it could be damaging to other people. It could be damaging to society. And I feel like as well, some of the laws are in place because it's like some of these things, like how, how am I trying to say this? Cause <laughs> you're at the two hour mark. My brain's going, but um, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll wrap this up here, but I guess it's like, Oh, I really lost where my brain was. <laughs> no, you're right, man. Take your time. But, um, well, what was? Do you remember what the last word I said was? Because I'll yeah, be able so, to get back there. So you're talking about 
it's okay to have a drink, but if you get drunk, then it's okay to have good food. But if you if you overeat, then you're overindulging. Mm. Yeah, I remember the point. Yeah, yeah. So it's like some of these things are in place because I guess some like some of these laws or some of God's laws. It's like if we without them, like, and if we just think that we can do whatever we want, we will blindly, I suppose, do things that will harm us and harm others, and we'll and we you know we'll give ourselves over to be slaves to our own desires. Mm. And in yeah. conquering sin, you actually create freedom for yourself because, like I said before, discipline is freedom. And I suppose part of Christianity is, well, one of the things it says, you know, you know, in accepting Christ, you know, that, you know, when you ask, when you're repenting and you're asking for God's help, he's helping you overcome your desires so that you're no longer a slave to sin. You know, this idea that the shackles are falling off and that Jesus is here to liberate us, to make us free. So living a Christian, some people feel like it's slavery because you're following these laws from a God that may or may not exist. But actually what you're doing is you're learning self-control and you're, lear- and you're being freed from your desires and you're no longer a slave to them. That's the mm. point I was trying to make. <laughs> yeah. And those rules, um, irrespective of whether you believe or not in, 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 a, in God or the God of Abraham or a higher power of any sort, those rules have withstood the test of time. Um, it is common sense that to steal is the wrong thing. It's common yeah. sense that to murder is the wrong thing. It's common sense that if you commit to someone that you probably shouldn't go and bang someone else. You know what I mean? These are all common sense things that have been passed down from generation to generation in all sorts of cultures, irrespective of whether you believe in in the God of the Old Testament or not. So um, I think to discount them and to discount um, religion as a whole is, is doing um, a massive injustice. And I know that there's people that really want to push that, um, thinking that, that um, as humans we can decide our own moral compass. We can, we can choose what's right and wrong based on our own intuition. But the reality is any time that we've ever had any society where it's governed by people deciding, oh, I'm going to do this because I think it's right, well, there's someone next to them that, that doesn't think that and they think that another way is right. And so you're always going to have infighting. And sometimes it's really important to have a, a set of rules that is higher than, than what we perceive to be right and wrong based on our own objection that we can strive towards so that despite what Joe Blow next to me thinks or despite what I think, here's a set of rules that says, he, you know, that we should do. It's, it's withstood the test of time. And to stray from that law would just be doing society as a whole, you know, a lot of injustice. There is a whole nother conversation I want to almost have here, but I, I, I always want to make some points here. And that is like, you know, some of the greatest civilizations that we built were built on the fundamental principles of Christianity. And mm. it was Nietzsche that said, you know, it was like the death of God will be like the destruction, like I suppose the loss of our society and it will start. And that's, I suppose that's kind of what we're seeing in the modern world now. The further we get, we get away from, you know, these original Christian morals and principles that they were built upon, we're, we're seeing society unhinged. We're seeing people with, uh, I suppose, more mental health issues. And, you know, they tried to build a society without God um, a, couple, a few times and it's still happening today. And that is called communism. That's man's version of let's build morality. And just a little history lesson of communism, it hasn't paired out so well. You know, we've seen, we've seen how it went in Russia. Um, we're seeing how it's currently unfolding in China. Um, Let's just hope it never. Yeah, there's one, there's a place in Venezuela, isn't it? Mm, yeah, Venezuela. 
Yeah. That's, that's, that's what happens when you try to build a society based on man's morality. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. um, uh, uh, we might leave it there, but um, Jesse, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. This has been, this has been quite, quite an epic one to say the least, I might say. Um, yeah. Hopefully it was long enough that my mum didn't hear me talk about my life in too much detail. <laughs> um, just, just one thing quickly. I remember sitting in, uh, in math class with you in like grade nine or 10, mm. and we both had something in common. And it was that we used to, we used to get easily distracted. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, right? And and I always think it's because our minds were busy. I remember I, my mind was always just busy, and it got us into trouble a couple of times. But when you look at now, the the one thing we have in common is that we we like to, to think outside the box a bit. It's funny how even if you know you've got a teacher that tells you fall in line and 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 shut up and, and, and stick to the work, you can't stop a busy mind and eventually it'll, it'll grow and it'll flourish and it'll find an environment like a podcast where it will thrive. And so I want to say thank you for, um, for being you and starting this thing because it might have started as a side hustle or you've always been passionate about it and things like that. But if you, if you hadn't have done it, um, then we wouldn't be talking today and uh, it was your idea and your creation and your dream to do it. So. Good on you for, for following that. You're a legend. No, and oh, thank you. You're a legend yourself. Thank you very much for giving your time. Um, I think it sounds like we've got a lot to talk about. So I might, I might have to get you on again sometime. Um, uh, and um, yeah, just one more thing for anybody who's still listening. Um, cause you brought up high school, our high school nicknames, yours was bum. Mine was pubes, but I never knew why they called. I don't think I ever found out why they called you bum. Are you able to? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> my last name's Barnard. And um, I used to get barnyard, and then one of the blokes I was at school with, I think he he coined me bumyard, and then it was just bum. So I've had a few nicknames over my time. That one has um, it hasn't really stuck, except for about two or three that still call me bum to this day. I've sort of embraced it. I think you know that's if, if there's one uh, part of the body I wouldn't be mind I wouldn't mind being named after. The bum's not the baddest place because it's the strongest part it's the strongest muscle in the in the body so you're welcome <laughs> yeah pubes because I got, I got curly hair <laughs> and it used yeah. to have an afro <laughs> very original very original is it <laughs> cool. all right um thank thank you very much for your time jesse it's been an absolute pleasure see you mate bye-bye thank you all for tuning into today's show and oh what's that you are still listening at the very end of the show That must mean that you enjoy today's show. So if you do, do not forget to subscribe for future episodes and please give this show a rating and a review. All right, I'll see you all in the next one.